Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Exploring Faith, Pursuing Grace. My name is Daniel Rogers, and these solo episodes are going to be numbered a little bit differently than the regular interviews. The reason is, is because I'm going to be focusing more on specific Church of Christ issues. Now, of course, they are related to other uh, movements as well, as we're going to see in this particular podcast. But I figured this would make it a little bit easier for those people who are uh, still uh, dealing with some of these questions to be able to locate and listen to and get something out of, right? Uh, you might not really need a <laughs> podcast episode right now on how nature relates to spirituality like you'll be hearing here in a few weeks. So we're going to be talking today about worship. And all of these questions we're going to be talking about in these solo episodes come from suggestions made by people in our Exploring Faith, Pursuing Grace podcast group. You don't have to agree with everything that we talk about here to be a part of that group. In fact, if you did, that would be super boring and this podcast would not even be needed. And so uh, feel free to join that even if you are just questioning these things or maybe you're coming here to uh, maybe dispute some of these things. Uh, it's a safe place for anyone to come and discuss and the only thing we ask is that you approach everything with a Christian attitude, uh, with an attitude of love, with the attitude of Jesus. So today what we're going to be talking about is worship. And this is going to be the first of a couple of episodes on worship. I'm not sure how many right away. I have an idea, but I don't want to commit to anything because these things tend to evolve and change as we go along. New questions arise, new points are brought up. Uh, but what we're going to be talking about today is a pattern of worship, what, my, what some people have called pattern theology. If you go to uh, freedominchrist.net, my good friend Dr. Dallas Burdett has some material on pattern theology, and there's a lot of funny stories in there, like in his book on uh, From Legalism to Freedom, <laughs> that talk about some pretty goofy things uh, that we've come up with because of this whole pattern theology idea. But if you're not familiar with that term, maybe this will sort of make more sense to you. Um, five acts of worship. <laughs> Right now, now if you heard that, you understand pattern theology, right? Pattern theology is this idea that when we come together to worship, there is a particular blueprint or pattern that we must follow in order to be the first century church or the New Testament church. In the churches of Christ, these are typically pray, preach, sing, Lord's Supper, give, right? And, uh, for example, um, in the Churches of Christ, typically, this isn't true in every case, um, anything outside of that would not be considered worship. In fact, any assembly outside of that that does not have all five of those elements may not be considered worship. I know growing up, I didn't even consider Wednesday night singings to be worship or Friday night singings to be worship or even like Monday night through Thursday night gospel meetings to be worship. Worship was specifically what we did on the first day of the week with all of those elements combined. Now, of course, if someone didn't take communion on Sunday morning and they took it on Friday on Sat on Sunday night, uh, that would be a worship service. But if they didn't take communion on the Sunday night, would it be a worship service since we offered communion, or would it not? You know that things get a little bit tricky. <laughs> but uh, those are questions troublemakers ask, so we're not going to be too worried about those right now. Um, I want to introduce you though to this wider world of Christianity. Because if you've heard the idea of a pattern of worship or pattern theology, then it may be the case that you haven't heard of this other term, the regulative principle. If you have heard of this, uh, please raise your hand. If you haven't, just keep your hand down and uh, we'll come back to you in a second. No. So the regulative principle is this idea that scripture prescribes 
or regulates the permissible elements of worship. I'm getting this definition, by the way, from the Pocket Dictionary of the Reformed Tradition. All right. So if you want to go look that up, have at it. It's all, there's also a pretty good Wikipedia article on this, too. Now, this is in contrast to the normative principle, but we'll talk about that here in a second. So, in applying the regulative principle, Reformed theologians and pastors, um, ministers and preachers, <laughs> okay, I need to stop. Uh, but anyways, they make an important distinction between biblical elements and the contextual circumstance in worship. While some conservative Reformed churches prohibit instruments in worship, like the Churches of Christ, for example, most have not interpreted the principle so strictly, seeing a broader range of biblical elements and their contextual variations. So the regulative principle is basically the Bible gives us a pattern for what our worship services should look like on Sunday morning between 1030 and 1130 and between 5 p.m. and 6 p.m., right? Now, different groups take this to different degrees, to, to different degrees, right? Some would believe that instrumental music is okay. Some believe it's not okay, like we mainly do in the churches of Christ. And it kind of determines what degree of specificity you sort of subscribe to. Like if you believe it should be exactly letter by letter what was stated with no contextual or cultural variation, then you may, up in a, you may end up in a situation where a woman is expected to have her head covered during worship, right? There was a situation when I was in college, for example, where we went to a hibachi express after morning worship and they asked me to say a prayer, and uh, the ladies at the table forgot to bring in their head coverings. The girl who was responsible for that had left them in the car or whatever, and so they all dove for the middle of the table to get napkins to put it over their head because otherwise they would be praying without their head covered. I thought that was a little bit odd, but they were sticking to their guns, right? This is what you have to do. There is no contextual variation. There can be no cultural interpretation, right? And so some people, when they get into the discussion of women's roles in the church and things like that, one of the first steps they made, you know, they might do is go to, say, First Timothy to try to establish the cultural context of First Timothy and interpret the pro- prohibitive passage in First Timothy 2 about women's roles in the church in light of that context, right? I think that's a helpful way of looking at it. I don't think that's the best way of looking at it personally, but that's because I don't agree with the regulative principle, right? That's not the principle that I hold to any longer of this pattern of worship, but that's what it's called. Like if you've wondered, did we just come up with these five steps of worship sort of, or five acts of worship thing? No, we didn't. This comes from a greater tradition uh, called the regulative principle. Now there's another tradition though, as I mentioned already called the normative principle. This is the principle uh, held more by Lutherans and Anglicans. Uh, You know, you might think of the Episcopal Church in the U.S. They believe that what is not forbidden in Scripture is admissible in practice, worship, and the government of the church, right? This is opposite to what was generally adopted by uh, John Calvin and his followers, right? Because that's where we come out of, right? We come out of the Presbyterian Church. We come out of more of the Reformed tradition. And because of that, we carried with us this baggage of the regulative principle. Had we come out of more of a Lutheran tradition or Anglican tradition, then we wouldn't really be confronted with the questions that we are, right? Like what is authorized by Scripture? So Martin Luther um, 
while holding to this principle of sola scriptura. What he thought was, uh, in matters of doctrine, that's true. But unless, uh, unless a ceremony went against the gospel of Jesus, like it caused somebody to live contrary to, to uh, the teachings of Jesus, the, the, the way of life that Jesus has presented, the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, then he wasn't going to condemn it, right? If a former practice was not forbidden by the word, he allowed it to remain. Uh, the Church of England, as I mentioned already, they sort of uh, followed this as well. And so if it wasn't forbidden in Scripture, they would accept it. Now, I know what you're thinking. Um, those of you who are listening to this, you probably thought that this was just, you know, something that, <laughs> you know, something that people kind of made fun of growing up, right? Well, they said that it's uh, not forbidden, so we could just go ahead and do it. Well, if I went to a drive through or I went to Subway and I ordered my sandwich with with a steak and pepper jack cheese and bacon and lettuce and tomatoes, then I wouldn't want any onions on there. I don't have to tell them, and I don't want this, and I don't want this, and I don't want this, and I don't want this. That's the argument we use, as if God is going through a drive through ordering us around what exactly he wants on his sandwich, right? But what the normative principle people would say is, no, that's not really it. It's, it's more of God gives us sort of a core. God gives us sort of a... Uh, central ideas, and we have liberty uh, to make decisions based off those ideas as long as they don't contradict those ideas, right? Let me read you this. This is from Leonard Allen's book, Discovering Our Roots, The Ancestry of Churches of Christ. And if you don't have this, it'd be a good one to pick up. It's just helpful because it shows you where we've come from and why we argue things the way that we do. The churches of Christ do not exist in a vacuum. It wasn't as if Alexander Campbell woke up one day in the 1800s and was like, oh my goodness, we need to start the Restoration Movement. No, he comes from a long line of reformers, uh, you know, dating, dating back hundreds and hundreds of years. And so we don't exist in a vacuum. And knowing a little bit about our history and our history's history uh, goes a long way in revealing why we even ask the questions that we do. On my website, danielr.net, I have a series that I did called questioning the questions. And some people found that helpful. Uh, you might find that helpful as well. So there's two questions that people are asking during the Reformation about the function of Scripture. Um, what One of the commenters on Exploring Faith, Pursuing Grace uh, podcast discussion group on Facebook called uh, the authority of Scripture. What does Scripture authorize, right? So these two, script, these two traditions, which we're going to call the Lutheran tradition, and the Reformed tradition, think more Calvinist, okay, both began with the doctrine Scripture alone, but each understood and applied it differently. Uh, you may have heard, uh, oh man, uh, Rick Actley from the Richmond Hills Church, I believe he did the whole chairs, uh, chairs video on Facebook or on YouTube. If you haven't seen that yet, I'll post it uh, down below. Let me make a little note of that. Um, it's called the Chairs of the Restoration or something. And what he says is, when Scripture is silent, or rather, when Scripture speaks, we speak. But when Scripture is silent, we have a whole lot more to say, <laughs> right? So that's basically a summation of the questions these guys asked, all right? Scripture alone, what does that mean? Well, the question is, does the Bible provide a complete blueprint for all time, laying out the details of church government, forms of worship, and rules for behavior? Or the other line of thought, the Lutheran line of thought, 
Or does it rather provide a central core of saving truth, leaving many of the details to human discretion and the changing circumstances of time and place? Why is there a prohibition against women speaking in the church in 1 Timothy 2? Apparently, but in 1 Corinthians 11, women are praying and prophesying in the assembly, albeit with their head covered. Right? Why is there a prohibition against uh, eating things sacrificed to idols in Acts 15, whereas in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul's like, you know what, that's really not that big of a deal because those gods don't exist anyways. So, you know, what's, what's the problem? <laughs> right? Now, Luther was not concerned primarily with the question, what is the biblical pattern that we should imitate? His uh, question he was focused on was, how can we find forgiveness of sins? The Reformed theologians, in contrast, return time and time again to the Bible as a blueprint or pattern for careful imitation. Going to Scripture, and I'm going to read the King James Version here just because of its uh, relevance to our movement and possibly uh, its familiarity with you. Paul says in Philippians 3, verse 16, Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us mind the same thing. You see there, brothers and sisters, let us walk by the same rule, let us mind the same thing. That must mean, one must assume, <laughs> right, that we must follow Paul in everything that we do, from the worship that we offer because we don't want uh, to the way that we live, because we don't want to be like old Nadab and Abihu. By the way, do you know that some people say Abihu? How awesome. Uh, but anyways, uh, we don't want to be like Nadab and Abihu and get burned up by God in the fires of hell because we offered strange fire to the Lord, right? Martin Luther, while holding to this view of Sola Scriptura, he was not focused so much on the pattern of worship. If it did not condemn something or if it does not go against the gospel of Christ, then it would be okay to practice, right? And that's sort of the way that I lean myself. What's interesting, though, is that um, Luther, uh, he held to what he would call uh, sort of the marks of church, the seven marks of the church, uh, or marks of the true church. This was another question that a, comment, that, a, that a commenter had asked about, because she had been told that the marks of a true church are the way that we worship. Luther had a little bit of a different uh, sort of understanding of this. Um, he offered these seven, the preaching of the gospel, baptism, the Lord's Supper, the office of the keys, which would be church discipline, the consecration of ministers, prayer, and public praise, and then faithfulness in suffering. So he would say that that right there constitutes who makes up a true church. Notice how general some of these were. For example, he says the Lord's Supper. He doesn't specify the frequency or the form of the Lord's Supper. One cup, pinching the bread versus breaking the bread, right? Uh, he doesn't emphasize the mode of baptism, immersion versus sprinkling, at least in this little paragraph, right? And he does not mention uh, the, the form of prayer and praise, right? He's just saying those elements would make up what he would consider to be the true church. Hopefully that's helpful for the one who asked about that because, uh, again, we come from a long tradition. We don't exist in a vacuum. And so knowing our history helps us to better understand these things. So we have these two principles, the normative principle versus the regulative principle. The regulative principle being the thing that the Church of Christ typically follows. Here is my question. This is the thing that I come to time and time again. We want to talk about Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus 10. 
What did Nadab and Abihu have? Did they not have chapter after chapter, scroll after scroll, uh, you know, from our perspective at least, of detailed instruction on specifically what they were to do? Right? I mean, you go back and you read Exodus, go back and you read the opening chapters of Leviticus. Like, there's no question about some of this, right? It's, it's very, very, very specific. But in the New Testament, keep in mind, we're not reading one scroll or one section of, of Scripture that, you know, came down to the mountain like, like Moses received. You know, Paul didn't receive this when he went out to Arabia, as Galatians 1 talks about. We are reading 27 books that were written over the course of a couple, yes, of several dozen years, even more than that, depending on who you ask. And in order for one to come up with a pattern of worship, they would have to go from book to book, from letter to letter, right? Because, I mean, to talk about uh, the five acts of worship, you have to go to Ephesians, and you know, then you might go to First Thessalonians to talk about praying without ceasing. You might go to another passage to talk about preaching, like Romans chapter ten or something like that. Then you got to go to First Corinthians to talk about giving, and then you got to go over here to talk about the Lord's Supper. And then to make the argument about the frequency of the Lord's Supper, you can't just have Acts chapter twenty and verse seven. You also have to have First Corinthians chapter sixteen and verse two, and establish a pattern of meeting on the first day of the week following the resurrection. The, the first century church didn't have these things. Right, They didn't have access to the Scripture in the way that we do now, in this compact, uh, put-together form. In fact, they had letters that we didn't have access to, like 0 Corinthians, or uh, the letter to the church of Laodicea. Maybe even the letters uh, that some of the other apostles sent out to the churches that they ministered to. Right? We don't have access to that stuff. And so, to think that the way that we come up with the mandated way of worship is by stringing together five different passages from across the 27 books of the New Testament and expecting people to naturally and logically come up with that in every situation in order to go to heaven is asking something of human beings that God has never asked of human beings. Nadab and Abihu had no excuse in the sense, right? I mean, there they had Moses who directly talked to God, like, just go ask him. There's Aaron, you know, he's a high priest, go ask him. But for us, going on a scavenger hunt through Scripture and expecting each person to walk away with the same answers, is that not a bit unreasonable? Is that is that really what we see in Scripture? But even then, though, uh, and this is what another commenter said is, she sort of got the idea that a lot of the passages that we talk about, like Ephesians five nineteen, about you know instrumental, you know, the debate about instrumental music and whatnot. I mean, this really talking about someone's life, isn't it? In the context, he's talking about do not uh, be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. It's not like, hey, this is what you do on Sunday morning during one hour. It's like, hey, instead of getting drunk and singing, you know, naughty songs. Why don't you get filled with the Spirit and sing spiritual songs? Wouldn't that be a better way to spend your time, right? So just the the idea that that's how you come up with how we are to worship and that your everlasting soul is dependent upon that doesn't seem in line with what Jesus said when he mentioned, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Let's talk about something else, uh, though, here for a moment. In Galatians 5, Paul goes through the fruit of the Spirit and uh, you know, if, 
if you were in Pew Packers class growing up, you probably had a lot of these memorized. Uh, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. But then he says this, against such things, there is no law. This kind of seems to me to fit in with, with, uh, with what Luther was arguing, and that is, hey, if something doesn't violate the principles of the gospel, then shouldn't it be you know, acceptable? Why would there be a law against that? If something produces love, joy, or peace, then is there a law against that? Would a woman leading a prayer during worship possibly produce self-control or peace or joy? Would instrumental music produce kindness or goodness or joy or faithfulness? And if so, then against such things, there would be no law. That is, that isn't violate a principle of the gospel. It doesn't cause someone to, lo- to live immorally, right? Which means, as we've sort of suggested, that the answers to these questions may vary from culture to culture, from people to people, depending on their unique situation. It may even change from, cult- from church to church. It could be that a, a specific church, you know, would need their ladies to cover their hair. I mean, if it was in like the Middle East or something, right? Maybe Iran with all the uh, protests and persecution that are going on right now, you know? So when we approach some of these questions, a lot of it is about thinking practically about these things. Um, You know, what's the practicality of someone reaching these conclusions and being expected to reach these conclusions by an an, uh, all-loving, patient God, the God whom Jesus has revealed through his death and resurrection? Is that really... How he, ex- you know, how he expects us to live? Is that really the expectations that he has for us? And is our everlasting soul really in the balance over, use- over using an instrument or something like that? I, I personally don't think so. I think it's impractical. I don't think it really fits within scripture. And I don't think it was reasonable to expect the first century church to come to these conclusions or expect even the intentions of these letters to, to be I am giving you a divinely ordained, mandated mode of worship that you cannot stray from. It just doesn't make much sense uh, to me personally. So that's why I sort of I drift more towards the normative principle uh, instead of the regulative principle. But there's still one more argument that we have to consider, and that is what is worship. I'll read to you a passage from the book of Hebrews chapter 9. All right. Hebrews chapter 9, now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. Okay, the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. And then he lists some of those in verses 2 and (laughs) 3. Where do we have that in the New Testament? Where is that list? Where is that explanation? Right? Where are those steps? Where, Where is the pattern? Now, I know we can go to, you know, five different passages across five different books to attempt to establish a pattern, but where is it laid out in the way that it was in passages like Leviticus and Exodus and Deuteronomy? You see how sort of unfair that would be? But whenever you do a word search on the word worship in the New Testament, specifically worship service, what you come across is not what we've been told that there is a mandated five steps of worship or five acts of worship that must be practiced every single Sunday or your eternal soul is going to be in, in danger. Instead, what you see is this, Romans 12, 1 and 2. I urge, you th- I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. 
Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Does that seem to fit more within this idea of the normative principle? That is, things that may not expressly be mentioned in Scripture, but do not violate simple gospel principles, right, of living a a good life uh, that produces the fruit of the Spirit? Or does Romans 12, 1 and 2 fit more within the regulative principle of worship, which suggests that there is a specifically dictated way that one must worship? What do you guys think about this? Go to the, go to the Facebook group and leave your comments. Let me know what you think, because to me, this, this changed the game, right? Where is the worship service in the New Testament? Where is it? We don't even have an example of a congregation performing all five acts of worship in a, in a narrative setting, right? The closest you get is 1 Corinthians, and they were doing all kinds of things we don't do. Each person had a psalm. Each person had a prayer. Each person had a prophecy. We don't do any of that. The women were praying and prophesying. Where is that at? You know, Some churches are starting to allow their women to have more freedom, but you don't see that in the majority of churches of Christ. So to say that we follow the biblical pattern of worship, what we're really saying is we follow a very selective uh, pattern that we've come up with from passages that, that we approve and we believe are timeless. If it doesn't fit into our cultural norms or categories, then we tend to reject them, right? So this is a, a start for you. This is a start for you. If you want to follow up on this, like I said before, pick up some of uh, these books I've mentioned specifically, Discovering Our Roots by Leonard Allen, but also check out Dallas Burdett's book, uh, From Legalism to Freedom. All of his books are for free on his website, freedominchrist.net, and they will be a huge blessing uh, to you as they have been to me. I also urge you to check out my website as well, danielr.net. I've got a lot of articles on these things. Just go on there and search uh, instruments or you know, worship or something like that, and you'll come up with a huge uh, list of results. Um, but also, also, I'd like for you to uh, check out my book, if you would. Um, it's called How a 25-Year-Old Learned He Wasn't the Only One Going to Heaven. I talk about how I wrestled with some of these very questions that we're going to be covering uh, every other week in these solo episodes. All right, That's about it for this one. I hope that you'll consider the things that I've said prayerfully. Hope that you'll search the scriptures. Hope that you'll carry on conversations with your friends. And keep in mind that the Bible wasn't ever intended to be interpreted on an individual level. It was, it was interpreted in a community. The letters of the New Testament, besides the pastoral epistles, were written to churches as a whole. And the whole congregation heard these things and discussed these things at once. Not in individuals with their own scrolls and their own private rooms thinking and talking about these things. The Bible is to be interpreted as a community. And when we do that, we open up ourselves to so many more fun possibilities, and it's actually uh, a blast instead of being something that you have to be worried about and you have to handle like a live hand grenade. So hope you'll uh, check out those resources. Hope they'll bless you and hope that God blesses you in all that you do. I'll see you in the next episode.